News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's check in with Mornings with Simi contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. One thing I do love about Twitter is that when there's a hot, funny local story, I tend to get it DM'd to me by several friends that are also in the media around the same time. And that happened to me yesterday. My phone started blowing up because Diane Watts, the former MP for South Surrey, White Rock, uh, had tweeted. She took to social media to complain about her residential My Fortis bill. And she posted a screenshot of the bill showing the amount due. Um, Get this. It was $556 for her usage. So huge, huge amount. And she wrote this. Unreal. My, My Fortis bill has doubled this month for the same usage that used to cost me $270 and $76 and an an $85.72 charge for carbon tax. Okay, ridiculously high, yes, but she tweeted that. And rather than getting sympathy, she got this barrage of, it was basically a who's who of Metro Vancouver from uh, political scientists to media types all saying, how on earth do you consume that much energy to heat your home and concluding that it was basically because she lives in a mansion. So some of the funnier tweets were one person wrote, are you running a grow up in there? Someone else wrote, when you live in a luxury home, you got to pay for it. What do you have a 10 bedroom home, a three story home, or do you just leave your windows open all winter? Um, it's funny because she had also tweeted an, an image of her, a Christmas picture of her uh, sitting at the fireplace with her dogs. And the home looks palatial. So that's uh, not really doing her any favors there. And she is in this like she's in this massive home with uh, this huge statue of Buddha next to her. I just it was for as far as PR goes, it was a hilarious moment. I, and I saw some of the responses uh, when you sent that to me, I, though I tend to think people are missing the point. The point she's making is it's for the same amount. Yes, you can look at her and say, well, how could you use so much energy? Fine. But she's talking about the fact that it's for the same amount and it's this huge carbon tax charge. And I took it to think, okay, and she's raising this issue. She can pay it. Of course she can. She's a former mayor. She's a former MP. What about people who can't? We're, we're charging these fees. It's not doing anything. We're not saving the planet with this thing. And we're charging people and penalizing people. What about those that aren't in the position to pay like she might be or that she is? Yeah, the carbon tax thing is valid. People didn't really take it for that. She had actually updated that she was going to get in touch with Fortis because she assumes that there's got to be some error here. So she wrote the previous month's usage was half as much. Plus, I had no heat for five days as a valve broke. So something is wrong. Um, But, you know, when you're in a position like that, I feel like you got to think twice before you tweet. Um, I'm not sure that happened here, but there may have been an error in the overall amount. As for the criticism of the carbon tax, uh, you're right. Not everybody can afford that. Absolutely. And, you know, we're looking at higher interest rates, inflation, these warnings now about a possible soft recession for winter. 
Uh, Tiff Macklem, who's making uh, his end of the year speech today, has already publicly said that there's going to be job losses. These are the kinds of things that are in people's minds right now. Um, so I don't know. I also found it a little bit out of step to tweet this picture, this image of her in this like, I mean, it's not diamond encrusted, but it's practically uh, it's a practically a palace, this picture of her posing with her dogs uh, at the Christmas tree. And, you know, that's not everybody's life right now either. No, that's uh, very true. I'm sure there'll be a lot more reaction and uh, people weighing in on that for sure. All right, Raji, thank you. We'll talk to you a little bit later on in the show. Thanks, Jill. That is CKNW Mornings with Simi contributor Raji Sohal. This is Mornings with Simi. Time to talk a little bit more about health news. We know that according to wastewater tests, COVID cases are slowly rising again. And of course, we have been talking about the statement that was put out last week about influenza-related deaths in children and youth. Let's bring on Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Thank you so much, Dr. Conway, for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, Let's start with the COVID-19 cases uh, rising again. We know that because of wastewater tests. Should we be concerned about this? Well, I think we should be no more concerned than we were last week. We know that there is a tridemic around. There's a lot of respiratory viruses. We need to get our shots, stay home. If we're sick, wear masks when it's appropriate to do so and wash our hands. This just reinforces the need for us to keep up these very simple but essential defenses going forward. And is it different this this season as well? I mean, we're, we're right at that point where kids are going to be going on their winter break. There are going to be a lot of gatherings and people, I think, kind of even making up for lost time and going to Christmas parties and family gatherings and such. Is it is it a different kind of scenario that we're dealing with? It is, especially because of influenza making a comeback. We've had more cases of influenza to date this year than we normally have in an entire flu season going into the spring because we'd lost that community-based immunity. We reopened our act, our society, our activities. And as you say, people are making up for lost time. So I think this contributes to an increase in respiratory viruses compared to any year in recent memory. And when you talk about the number of cases that we've seen, and certainly we have been talking about specifically not only the the total number of cases, but specifically the number of influenza-related deaths in children and youth. And we know that at this point, the BC Centre for Disease Control is aware of at least six of these flu-associated deaths, which if, if I'm looking at the numbers, right, to have six in such a short period of time in BC, when we look at, at how many we normally see right across the country during flu season, it seems like an alarmingly high number. Well, our condolences go out to the families, of course, and an average year is two deaths. So we've had three times as many deaths so far in the pediatric population than we see in an average uh, year. So again, this is a cautionary uh, tale. We need to be very, uh, we need to be very careful. And and when we talked to Dr. Henry about this last week, she mentioned that we're still trying to figure out if it is because of that time where kids weren't out there being exposed to germs, they weren't being exposed to the flu. We had the one flu season where really there was no flu. Still trying to figure out if that specifically is what's making people more vulnerable. But, uh, But before we even get that definitive answer, it's safe to say that that has to be part of it, isn't it? That we went for that period of time without 
being exposed to these germs, to these viruses? Absolutely. You do get a community-based immunity in the background. Just because influenza is circulating, you get your shot, and some people don't get their shot, but they get antibodies, they get protection, because there's flu in the environment. We went one and a half, almost two years, without any influenza. So that extra layer of protection is not there, contributes to the increased number of cases, especially in pediatrics today. And when we're talking about children and the flu shot, I think that's something too that is new as far as the push to get kids that age vaccinated. In the past, I think we know that flu is dangerous in kids and can be fatal in kids, but it's always more been protecting the parents, I think, or protecting the adults as a way to protect the kids. It's a bit of a shift now to be suggesting that to or or. Uh, promoting saying that the best defense right now is also getting those kids vaccinated. But how do you get that message out there so that those numbers will go up? Well, I think we're all tired. The pandemic has taken a lot out of us, but we did a lot of good work together to get to where we are. The message to get out is the things that are being asked of us are much simpler than at the height of the COVID pandemic. And it starts with getting our vaccinations. Usually influenza affects those over 65, and we have an enhanced vaccination for that age group, and everything is free. All vaccines are free for influenza for those over the age of six months. So the message is we still need to be on our guard, but it's not going to ever be as bad in terms of restrictions as it was at the height of the pandemic. It's simple things that we all need to do together to make it through this uh, this winter season, this respiratory virus season. So let's all do it together. And what about how effective the flu shot is? Because that is also something we've seen in past years and that we know the flu strains change and they morph and it's not 100%, nothing is 100%. But do we have an idea on how effective this year's flu shot is for this year's flu? Well, I think it'll be pretty effective in terms of what's in the vaccine matching the strains that are out there. We were spoiled with the COVID shot being 80-90% effective. Influenza vaccination is about 50% effective overall, but it does contribute significantly to reducing the risk of serious disease. And I think that's really what we're aiming for, and this year's vaccine should be quite good. And uh, Dr. Conway, you, you touched on this as well, the idea of, of what we know to do, not going out when sick, not going to work when sick and, and taking those precautions. Uh, do you have any concerns with kind of the lifting of even isolation requirements and things that, that we will have more exposures or people maybe reverting back to those kind of pre-pandemic things of pushing it maybe when we shouldn't? Well, pushing it where we shouldn't is really what I'm concerned about. And We don't need to wait to be told what to do to do the right thing. And I think that's really the message we should get out there is our new normal is about preventing the spread of infection. And some of the things that we're being asked to do, we will be asked to do probably for the foreseeable future. So let's incorporate them into our daily lives, make it easy, make it normal so that we can all live in a more healthy way, especially in the coming months. And of those things, then, what would you say is the most important? Vaccination by far. It's our first line of defense. We're tired. I think that many people, about 50% of British Columbians, have not had uh, appropriate COVID shots. We had a good start for uh, influenza vaccination. 
but we sort of fell off. People were enthusiastic at first. Now people are, are less enthusiastic. So we're probably going to see a push for vaccination, vaccination parties, vaccination events in community centers. That'll be our first line of defense. And the other thing that's really important, and, and talking to parents, we're, we're, we're going into a holiday season now where the kids are going to be at home. But if they're sick when they get up, don't send them to school. I think that's one of the things that we need to learn, and that, uh, that needs to be part of our new normal. All right, Dr. Brian Conway, always great to chat with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show this morning. Pleasure, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Surrey City Council is set to vote on the Surrey policing plan this evening. We know council already approved to halt the municipal police force transition. But there is a new report now showing just how much Surrey taxpayers could potentially save if they keep the RCMP. Joining us to talk a bit more about what is going to be happening at council today is City Councillor Linda Annis. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Happy to be here. Good morning to you. What specifically then will council be doing this evening on this? Uh, The council will be voting as to whether or not to send the report that was submitted to us for review to Minister Farnworth um, uh, this week. and the the vote comes uh, now that we've seen this report and some new numbers looking at the costs. What do you know about the costs and how is that going to play into the vote, do you think? Well, I'm very concerned about the report. Uh, you know, first and foremost, I do believe that the people of Surrey deserve a say through a referendum. And since that's not going to happen, at the very least, they need to know what the real facts are. And there's a whole bunch of different numbers floating out there. Uh, when uh, Mayor Locke was running, uh, her Surrey Connect people said that the cost uh, to transition uh, to the Surrey Police Service was going to be $520 million. The report that we have before us tonight that was put together by uh, two former RCMP officers, uh, it indicates that the cost is going to be $235.4 million. Uh, and uh, Surrey Police Service says the cost is going to be around $110.1 million. So I think we need to know what the real cost is before we make a, a decision. At the very least, uh, the residents deserve that. And so whatever happens tonight, though, and, and I think uh, people can kind of look at the, the makeup of council now and see which direction things are going. But, but whatever happens with this vote tonight, it still goes to the public safety minister. So how do you see that unfolding? Well, it would go to the uh, public ma- public safety minister for sure, but I do think that uh, the SPS and uh, city government and everyone needs to get in one room together and agree on the numbers so that Minister Farnworth uh, has the correct information from the silly city. We don't want to look foolish and be giving him yet another set of numbers that are, are not the same ones that we're giving him tonight. Let's get it right in the first place. So what are the chances of that happening, though, if the vote on this is specifically going forward tonight? If the uh, vote goes forward, which I think it's probably safe to assume, uh, Mayor Locke has uh, five votes and there's nine of us that sit on council. uh, So I think it's pretty safe to say that it will go through. But it's a bit of an embarrassment for the city if there's three sets of numbers out there and you know, we aren't all uh, talking together. I'm not sure why the SPS wasn't consulted uh, in this approach. They sure should have been because they have uh, their numbers that need to be shared. Is anyone speaking at council or will there be any submissions or more information coming forward that you know of before this vote? To the best of my knowledge, uh, there won't be any outside people uh, 
uh, speaking to it, which is unfortunate. We had a great presentation from the RCMP at last council. It was very informative, but we've not yet heard from the Surrey Police Service, nor has council met with uh, as a group with any of the Surrey Police Service uh, leadership or uh, their board at this point in time since we've been elected. So they haven't met with them as a group. Do you know, have there been any meetings or any conversations with the mayor or anyone on council with the Surrey Police Service? Well, the mayor does chair the uh, police board, and I know that uh, at the initial meeting it was not uh, a good meeting in that uh, they were questioning whether or not uh, she should be chairing because uh, she obviously, as her election promise, was to get rid of them. And so I think that they viewed that definitely as a conflict. Right. And and do you think that that is a conflict and that should be looked at again? Well, I don't think uh, that uh, the mayor of any city should be chairing a police board. And certainly where she has been very, very vocal about getting rid of them, it seems very odd that she would be chairing the meeting. And looking just quickly again at the numbers, because it is, they do change and they change depending on who you speak to. And, and this report is one example of that. Uh, you, If you talk to the police service, uh, there's certainly a difference of opinion on severance that might potentially be paid out. So uh, how will taxpayers ever get a true sense of what those numbers are? Well, and that's deeply concerning to me that the taxpayers are not. Uh, for, you know, they can't even agree on the number of officers uh, that are actually uh, boots on the ground. There is a whole question around the severance. Uh, you know, Surrey P- Police Service says the number could be upwards of 70 million. Um, Mayor Locke says many of them can just be given working notice. Uh, there seems to be no consistency in what we're being told. And I think it's very unfortunate the residents are being left out and council is being asked to make a decision without facts that we can count on. All right. So I know a lot of people will be looking to see what the vote is and what that discussion is at council tonight. Councillor Annis, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, a man who spent more time at Vancouver City Hall than just about anyone and was a household name in the city for decades has passed away. Longstanding BC politician George Puel passed away at the age of 92. Uh, I found this in our archives, and this is a story from 2008, and it's two former Vancouver politicians, Philip Owen and George Puel, and they were talking about some leaked information about the city's loan to the developers of the Olympic Athletes' Village. This uh, was uh, leaked, and it was an illegal thing to do, and uh, they knew that, and it's totally wrong what was done on this issue. It's just unbelievable what they've come out with and spun this for political gain. It's despicable. It's the lowest type of politician, politician that I've ever encountered in all my years, some 40 years in an elected position, I've never seen anything like this. That was the voice of George Puel there, the last voice you heard. And talking about his 40 years in politics, and again, that was a clip from 2008. They were both speaking on what was then the Bill Good Show. Well, joining me now to talk more about the legacy of George Puel is Mike Klassen, a current Vancouver City Councillor. Mike, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. When you think of George Puel and all of the work he did, he was a park board commissioner. He was an 11 term city councillor. What do you think about uh, being his legacy? 
Uh, well, I think his legacy is one of a um, good governance, which doesn't sound terribly sexy, but at the end of the day, um, we can see what happened when the city isn't run well. And he was uh, a stalwart city councillor, uh, was in public life for 38 years, and um, had held many major posts as well that I think were very influential that, you know, that we benefit from today. Certainly not uh, without some controversy uh, as well. And uh, no politician, obviously, has people agreeing with everything they do. But he certainly did have a passion for civic politics and a passion for being in that role. Well, he was born in Alberta, and but grew up in Vancouver. And like so many of us, he fell in love with the city. And uh, he expressed that in different ways. He, uh, he taught at uh, Kitsilano Secondary. Uh, there have been students of his that have been posting their comments online of how much they adored. He taught them civics, you know, really how local government works, which you don't really get a lot of these days. And, and so he left that legacy. In fact, one of the people who, who chimed in was uh, Deputy Chief Constable Steve Rye from the Vancouver Police Department was one of his students. Um, but, yeah, no, uh, uh, Puel got this, uh, had this reputation for being kind of irascible and grumpy. And um, he would often go after Harry Rankin, who was, you know, kind of a torchbearer for the left wing on city council. And they were both really great parliamentarians. So parliamentarians, so they would go after each other in the council chamber. But it said that, that you know, once the, you know, the, the cameras were off, so to speak, you know, they would go back there and they're quite good friends and their wives and families would dine together. And so, you know, I think uh, the sport of, 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 of politics and debate is, you know, what, what our government's all about. And he really represented that. I wanted to share one other clip that I, I found only to show, I think, also the fact that the, these stories and these issues continuously come up when we're talking about civic politics. And this is a, it was actually a Janet Brown story again from 2008. Uh, and it says, I told you so. That's what former Vancouver Councillor George Puel is saying after hearing TransLink is thinking about a vehicle levy as it looks for ways to save money. It's something Puel was pushing for back in the 90s. Then it would have brought in at $75 a vehicle. It would have brought in about $120 million. It was approved by the GVRD. And then the then premier of the province, Yushel Desange, from what I understood from the Auditor General, vetoed it. Uh, so not impressed with that then, but that struck out or stuck out to me, Mike, as, wow, these issues just keep going around and around. So Puel was in many ways ahead of his time. So he came up with this idea. Now, if I told you, hey, we're going to tax you 75 bucks on your car, people usually kind of go berserk. But if you think about how we're taxing now at the gas pump and what that uh, cost accumulation is over time, and the fact that many vehicles are now going electric and not paying that tax, which some people are really thrilled about, I mean, it just means that we're going to have to find other revenue sources to try and keep uh, public transit uh, going and growing. And so I think Puel was very forward-looking, but, of course, he paid for it dearly. I mean, politically, he was, he was toast at that point. He got voted out of office in 2002, which is amazing that we're talking about him a full 20 years later and, and still, you know, still people having very, really great memories of, of what he did in public office. Well, and again, like you said, a bit ahead of his time, bringing out those ideas. But also, I mean, when you look at it as well, and I think that's probably another reason why people respect him so much and have fond memories of, yes, he brought forward ideas, perhaps that weren't all that popular, but he still did that. Yeah, he had the reputation for, again, not suffering fools uh, 
uh, gladly. But he, at the same time, he, behind the scenes, he was apparently uh, of good humor and quite mischievous and, and a, a good friend to many. Uh, but uh, I think he put it all out on the on the floor when it came to, um, you know, his public service. And, and as I said, you know, he came and, and fell in love with the city and and and, and that really shows. And, and to, to build, a, you know, from scratch, um, the, the transportation authority, TransLink, which is quite unique in its, in its sheer size and, and the scope of the work that it does. Um, it's it's really um, uh, envied by many other jurisdictions around the world to come here to look at how we did that. So he had a big part of that and uh, was the, the last chair of Metro Vancouver, our regional government as well, which gives you also an impression of how uh, well admired he was across the region. Uh, and when looking back at his life as well, I had completely forgotten that he was also a very celebrated athlete. Yep, he played rugby and football, and he wasn't that uh, big of a guy. So, but he still was—he's now in the in the BC Sport Hall of Fame as a result of that. And uh, and and um, so many people from from that community uh, remember him for being a really fierce uh, player on the field, and obviously later on became very successful in. Uh, and uh, when he was in city council as, as, as one of the more fierce defenders of the city and its interests as well. Hmm, and, and interesting too. You're right. Cause I, when you think of him and interactions with him, it just, I, I again had forgotten that he was a football player and was in the, the football hall of fame. Uh, Mike, do you think has the civic political life, the landscape, obviously the landscape has changed. Has, has it changed as far as how, what we expect and get from civic politicians? That's a great question. I, I think social media, they say, has, has definitely changed uh, the dynamic of, of public life. But I think you have to um, figure out a way to, to make sure that that doesn't overcome you, that you're, that you're really being led by evidence and, 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 your, and your values. And I, I honestly think that uh, politics is, is always only as good as the people you've got involved in it, like with so many institutions. And uh, having people like George there um, made made our work here and our city better. And I and I hope that you know others will follow in his footsteps. He's, he's certainly somebody I greatly admire from um, from his legacy. I, I didn't know him personally. I got more involved in municipal politics at the time that he was leaving. But um, uh, again, I uh, we do have some really great people, and I want to be able to sort of support and celebrate them as much as uh, what they do, because some of the work can be very hard. All right. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining us and talking about George Pule and his career. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. My pleasure, Jill. Bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you might have noticed, depending on where you went to get your Christmas tree, it could be a bit more difficult to find that quality tree. So why is that? Mornings with Simi contributor Raji Sohal is joining us for more on that. Good morning to you. Hi, Jill. There is a Christmas tree shortage. Uh, Some people are feeling it more than others. And it's being reflected in the price. So last year, my living tree cost me $100, which I remember thinking, whoa, that's a lot. I've never spent this much on a tree. This year, same place that I went to, $130. So part of that is inflation for sure, because the rising costs affect every part of the process from uh, the gas for the transport vehicles, those semi-trucks, to fertilizer and labor is really expensive. But in BC, the tree farms, uh, which tend to grow a combination of firs, pines, spruce, 
so they're part of the tree shortage issue. And this comes down to extreme climate events our province has been through. So tree farms here are an operation between forestry and agriculture. And I talked to a professor from UBC, Dr. Richard Hamlin, about the challenges that Christmas tree farms face. You grow them like usually on old farmland uh, and we grow them in rows. We, we remove the weeds. Sometimes we have to spray for pests and diseases. So it's very much like a farm operation, but also kind of a hybrid with the uh, uh, with a forestry operation. Uh, but the thing to keep in mind is that these are, you know, these are trees that uh, it takes, you know, it, it can take up to 12 years to grow a Christmas tree. So from the seedlings, you know, uh, once the tree farmers um, put the seedlings in the ground, you know, it can it can be another 10 to 12 years before they can they can harvest it. It's just been a reduction in the number of farms. Uh, a lot of people either they went out of business or they just decided not to uh, you know, not to uh, produce anymore. Things were more expensive. That's one of the one of the big reasons. And then during the pandemic, you know, no one traveled. We all stayed here. And of course, when you spend Christmas here, you want a Christmas tree. Sometimes people want two or three Christmas trees, one for the house, one for outside and one for the cottage, for example. Um, <laughs> so that that, you know, basically we produce less trees because we, you know, a lot of farms went out of business. I think like 400 Farms countrywide went, either went out of business or stopped producing, so we produce less trees, and then there's a higher demand. So, so this is uh, this is the combination that you know makes it so uh, uh, that that we have a shortage now. And then on top of it, we have these crazy weather events: the, the droughts, the floods. There's these extreme weather events, like we've seen the flooding, the heat waves, the heat domes, the the wildfire. Uh, and 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 this these kind of extreme events, you know, we go from a drought to atmospheric river and floods, right? Uh, and this is all really hard, and it hurts hurts the uh, the Christmas tree production. Uh, both of both of the drought and you know and and the floods are hurting the the Christmas tree production. So uh, the 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 heat and the drought, the problem is that. Um, it really affects the, the young trees, like the seedlings, because uh, the, you know the farmers every year. If you're a tree grower, a Christmas tree farmer, every year you need to plant new seedlings because you know you're going to cut some of the older ones, and then you want to plant some new ones for the future. And these young ones are particularly susceptible because they don't have big root systems, so they so they're very vulnerable to the drought. Uh, and so that's what happened is in the last two years, a lot of mortality of these. Uh, of these young trees. So these drought events, when they happen more often, so like now we've had two droughts in a row, you know, if these droughts keep happening, uh, then it's going to be really, really hard to uh, to keep producing things like Christmas trees. Yes. So we had a drought this summer. Does that mean that we're going to have even fewer trees next year? Like, is the shortage going to get worse? Definitely, the shortage the shortage is getting worse because of the droughts and the heat domes. There's there's been a lot of mortality. We may not feel it right away because some of, like I said, some of the older trees may have survived the drought uh, with their you know deeper root systems, but a lot of mortality on the younger seedlings. So we may it may be a delayed effect that in you know eight to ten years, all those trees, those seedlings that have that have died won't be there in uh, you know in eight eight years plus to uh, to provide us with Christmas trees. So yeah, expect these shortages to 
to get get even worse. There's a big debate about natural versus plastic trees. I'm on the team of natural trees for sure. You know, they do, uh, you know, through photosynthesis, they take uh, greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere, fixes them. Uh, and then they're completely biodegradable. And that's not true for the artificial Christmas tree, you know. But in terms of the solutions, uh, I, I think what we need to do is we need to start, uh, you know, using like genetics, for example, like to select trees that will be more uh, adapted to the to these drought events. And and that's completely feasible. Uh, we just need to get uh, get going and uh, and and select trees that are going to be adapted for these these big drought events. Oh, interesting. So I do have a real tree. I always buy my tree. I'll give a plug for Aunt Leah's. They're a charity that I like to support. <laughs> uh, and I asked them about it, actually, when I got my tree a couple of weeks ago, because there were so many stories about the shortage. They didn't uh, experience the shortage. I know they get a lot of their trees from Washington State. But you're right, Raji. I know a lot of people have noticed that the prices are a little higher this year. Yeah, and I did make some calls around to some farms, and what I was hearing is that trees from BC were of a lesser quality this year round uh, versus ones from Ontario. I like to have a fresh tree, Jill, a freshly cut tree, taller than me, close to the ceiling, heavy ornaments, all of that stuff. I love it. It's my favorite thing about Christmas time. I was so curious um, about what people in tree, people in stores, like gardening stores and that kind of thing are seeing with their tree sales. I wanted to get their perspective. So I talked to Luke Tancredi and he's actually in his fourth season of selling trees to customers at GardenWorks. What we've seen over the past couple of years too is a lot of people kind of going more all out with their decorating. A lot of people looking for kind of the biggest and best trees. Um, so we sold out very quickly of our bigger trees. Our local supply here was a little bit shorter this year just because of the flooding that happened in the valley this past year and the, and the uh, fires and whatnot. So yeah, it's been a little bit lower. The, the cool thing with the, the Christmas trees, you know, a lot of people are under the impression that, um, you know, they should go for the plastic Christmas tree. Um, but the interesting thing about conifers, evergreen uh, Christmas trees, is in the first um, seven to 10 years of their life, uh, is usually how old trees are when you get them for Christmas. They hold the most carbon in those seven to 10 years. So when you cut them down, they store the carb carbon without re-releasing it into the atmosphere. So it's actually beneficial for the environment to, to buy a real Christmas tree because it holds the carbon and it actually stores it. It also promotes people to give them jobs of planting and taking care of the trees. Um, and, you know, plastic trees don't really last forever. Usually after 10, 15 years, they kind of, kind of start to look ratty for most people. The tinsel's falling off or whatever. Um, and then if you ever throw it out, it's going to be take thousand years to you know uh, to decompose. Hmm, interesting stuff. Know. Yeah, and if you've got a green thumb, I'm hearing more about people who are reusing their trees from year to year. But of course, a lot of us urban dwellers don't have the yard or space to do that. But I'm hearing more about that trend. All right, uh, interesting indeed, Raji. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jill.